This is Alex. I'm from Boston. Hello, this is Jackie, and I'm from Houston. Hey, this is Rahul from Stanford. And we are the Premier Chefs. All right. Welcome back, guys. I'm here with Ben Jacobs. Welcome back, Ben. I hope you had a good weekend. Uh, not much going on in the Premier League, but uh, <laughs> we'll talk about some of the things that happened. So let's start with, I know you went out to a game, Wolves-Fulham. How was that? Uh, your thoughts on both teams? And Fulham now picked up two points, so a little bit closer to that 40-point uh, mark. Fulham had a good start to the season, for sure, and they'll feel a little bit unfortunate not to have left with all three points because Mitrovic missed a penalty but by the same token, Wolves had the lion's share of the possession and missed some big chances of their own. So I think that Marco Silva will be happy with a point. And for Wolves, it's same old, really. They started last season so well, but they ended it so poorly. And their winless run in the Premier League continues. And obviously, if they are going to push for European football or finish in the top half of the table, they're going to have to start picking up more points at home. In fact, last season... They won more points on the road than at Molyneux. And they just don't look clinical. They need a goal scorer. And they, in my opinion, are maybe a little bit foolish to have let Connor Cody go. He divided the fan base and Max Kilman and I think Nathan Collins are the solution at the moment as the two centre-backs. And Kilman in particular, I think, is a really good player with a lot of potential. But I just wonder where the Wolves are going to keep that many clean sheets, even though this one finished nil-nil. And up front, they play very attractive football, but they just lack a cutting edge. And obviously, Gonzalo Guedes, their £27.5 million signing from Valencia, has joined. He came off the bench. He looked lively in parts. He started on the left-hand side. Then he played centrally. And he finished the last few minutes of the game on the right, which shows you his versatility. And he might end up being the solution. But when you look at, say, Huang, who often leads the line and one or two others in the Wolves team that are very creative minded, but aren't going to get you 10, 12, 15 goals, you start to wonder whether once they start conceding or if, as was proven against Fulham, they're not that clinical, they're going to get sucked towards the bottom end of the table. And there's a fair few people, myself included, that have them in our virtual tables, our hypothetical prediction tables, quite close to the bottom. I don't think they'll go down, but it wouldn't remotely surprise me if they end up 15th or worse. And it's a shame because good club, strong manager, attractive style of football. They've, for now anyway, hung on to Neves and Moutinho. So on paper, they should be able to stabilise and move in the right direction. But for whatever reason, maybe because of the momentum from last season, I've just got this nagging doubt about Wolves. Uh, and I do think that they'll end up moving backwards rather than forwards. But from Fulham's point of view, great start because they've shown at home that they can take a point off one of the big boys and then away from home. They defended very resolutely. I was actually really impressed by the American Ream, who was the captain at centre-back. I thought his positional sense was excellent. And the other defender, Tosin, had a decent game too. So very organised. Mitrovic looked a bit stranded at times, which you'd expect on the road. And as I said, right at the top, they had a penalty and an opportunity to steal all three points. So positive start for Fulham, a hard-earned point, a decent point on the road. And they are showing in the early stages of the season that they can 
definitely, if they start well too and get points early on the board, move away from this automatic relegation favourite or relegation contender tag that gets dumped on a newly promoted side all too often and easily and glibly before a ball is kicked. But from what I've seen of Fulham so far and Nottingham Forest, less so Bournemouth, but it's tough when you play against Manchester City last time out. But from the flashes I've seen from Forest, even in their defeat against Newcastle and Fulham as well, there's absolutely no reason why they will be nailed on for relegation. There's a long, long way to go, but it means that if you're, for example, an Everton or maybe even a Wolves, instead of thinking that three weaker teams have come up, on the evidence we've seen so far, even though it's not that reflective, those teams that dice with relegation last season, Leeds United are potentially another one. They are going to have to be very, very careful because the three teams that have come up, but I think particularly Forest and Fulham, are going to be no pushover. Yeah, and, and they've come up with uh, enthusiasm. They've come up with new ideas in certain in certain cases with Nottingham Forest, new signings and new players that uh, you know bring about new belief into the squads away from Wolves, I look, you look at them and they've been in the Premier League for a while, like you were saying. And they've added a few players here and there, but nothing that's kind of elevated and brought in new belief and new way of doing things. Now, of course, Bruno Lodd came in last season and uh, surprised of quite a few people. I think we we all thought what they were going through towards the end of the season would be what they would go through pretty much for the full season. So, of course, there's a couple more weeks left in the transfer window. We don't know what some of these clubs bring in and, and do, but uh, an interesting nil-nil game. I, I didn't watch it, but I did look at the highlights and saw the the penalty save from Saad that helped my fantasy team. Uh, let's move to from Fulham, one side of West London to the other. We had a hot, hot, hot uh, derby, <laughs> London derby in, at Stamford Bridge. We kind of expected it, you know, when these two teams come together. Conte with the, at the helm for Tottenham uh, with all the new signings and believe that he's brought there. Chelsea kind of Slow started with the Everton game, but they looked very good in this game. And it almost begs the question is, uh, why don't we do it all all the time in every all game? Uh, but that's a question for Tuchel and, and um, the squad there. But your thoughts on the game? I mean, controversial refereeing decisions and, and uh, calls that were given that were not given. There's a lot of talk about Anthony Taylor and, and the agenda there. Uh, I won't put you on the spot to talk about that, but overall thoughts on the on the game and how Chelsea and Spurs look like for the rest of the season. Well, there was an intensity, wasn't there, that right. felt more like a end of season game than one this early, and that's exactly what you want. And you can use that whether you're Chelsea or Spurs to kind of make a statement ahead of the entire season because if there's that much at stake and the intensity is that high. It isn't only because of the context of the game. It's also because both of these teams are ambitious, moving in the window, and they are aware early on that this is the yardstick. It's the litmus test. And I think that Chelsea, again, showed that regardless of the result, they were dominant. They were by far the better team. And that is the main headline to take from it, in my opinion. Chelsea came out the blocks fast, played a phenomenal first half, perhaps the best since the Bernabeu, and they rude in the end, not killing off the game, but not through a lack of trying. They played with pace and energy, bossed the midfield, and Kukurea, Sterling, and Koulibaly, three new signings, all showed their worth with Kukurea delivering 
for Koulibaly, who finished like a striker. And it's funny because when he joined, I made the point repeatedly, I think on here, on other podcasts, on Twitter, of saying one thing he's worked on in the latter part of his career, really only the last two seasons, is to boost the attacking contribution. And you look at the incisive pass that led to the penalty in the first game and then the volley finish from the corner in the second game. And his contribution has arguably been more effective from an attacking perspective than a defensive one. And yet he's also defended pretty well. So that tells you what a complete player, not just defender, but footballer he is. So this would have been a statement win and it would have been underpinned by the new signings, which is all very positive. And there's a buzz about the football club. And then from Sterling's point of view with the second goal, I think he was really unselfish. You could see before the ball even arrived that he was aware of the space with James to his right. And he laid it off very quickly. But there's certain strikers in the league that they only would have looked down. They would have controlled it and wanted to hit it because he was in a central position inside the box. So that's encouraging as well, because this was a team performance by Chelsea, not just a collection of stars. And the fact that the new signings can fit within that and have gelled already is just very, very encouraging. So everything from Chelsea's point of view in terms of the way they played was superb. And it underlines, even though we're early in the season, that when this side are ticking, they're going to take some stopping, particularly at home. And even though some say Tottenham are going to finish third and Arsenal are going to improve, and because it's going to be difficult to catch Liverpool and Manchester City, Chelsea might be looking over their shoulders. I think the opposite. I've always said Chelsea are my three in the table and the first 45 minutes of the game against Spurs were exactly why. So that's kind of all of the positives. The negatives are they didn't kill off the game. They allowed Spurs to dig in and get their two goals. And then the other negative is obviously the fallout. And I don't think that it's a bad thing, the handshake, the sort of knuckle-clenching handshake of Tuchel walking and yet holding contact, because that spice, that's intensity. Love the celebration, the Jose Mourinho like run down the touchline, because this is what gets fan bases going. This is what sends a message to the players and the ownership that everybody is really fired up and ambitious to finish the window strong and start the season well. So all of that, fine. And the fact that both managers got red cards at the end is kind of irrelevant. And it's almost worth taking to make that statement at full time. So then the only other area that obviously needs to be discussed is the officiating. And I don't think it's fair, even though every Chelsea fan listening will disagree to say a specific referee has got an agenda. And actually, as a fan, you can make that argument less now because of how many layers are supposed to be in place to protect a decision. So if you're going to say that there is an agenda, you can't always call it out against the ref because the official is reliant upon his fourth official, his assistants, and in this modern age, VAR. And there's certain things that a ref will see and others that he has to be reliant on the video technology. So obviously, rather than pinning it on one person, you have to look at the rules and the mechanism. But I must say that Chelsea can feel incredibly hard done by. Havertz was fouled in the build-up, but because it wasn't in the phase of the goal, there was 44 seconds between that foul and Tottenham's first goal. It wasn't reviewed by VAR. That's ridiculous because the ball didn't go out of play. So you should be able to go back as far as you like. If you look at rugby, that's exactly what happens. You can have 20 phases played on an advantage. And then if there's an indiscretion and actually the defending team benefit, they'll pull it up the other way. 
So to have an arbitrary point where you say, we're not going to consider it before that point is ridiculous, unless there's a clear stoppage or the ball goes out of play. So it was a foul on Havertz. There wasn't a foul in the box, so there can be no complaints around that. But the first contact on Havertz should have been whistled and wasn't. And then how can you argue that Richarlison is not offside when from six or seven different angles, he's in the vision of Mendy? That's just a farcical decision. And... I understand that he is passive in the sense that as the shot comes in, he kind of puts his hands down and turns slightly. But any visual block, even minor, and any movement is in the goalkeeper's eyes. And Mendy has to try and get down. But at the same time, how does he know that that ball's not going to hit Richarlison? He's in his vision. So it's in his mind regardless because the player's close enough and the ball is close enough that even if he does have a view, he doesn't know exactly the flight of the ball. He doesn't know if it's going to be hit high or low. It could take a deflection. So he has to arguably go down a split second later to allow the ball to pass Richarlison, even though there's a gap, even though from some angles, he's not interfering. So there needs to be some clarity on that because on the one hand, any kind of handball is given, even when it's arbitrary and accidental in the box. And yet when a player is standing in an offside position in your vision, they're lenient about it. And I think Chelsea can feel very hard done by in that respect. And again, I don't want to say that's an agenda. I just think that that is poor, poor officiating by everybody because the assistant is level, so can see the offside and can at least ask the question. And then the referee has a vantage point and then VAR can look at it from all different angles. So that's one. And then, of course, in the build-up to the Kane equaliser, there's a clear hair pull, and hair pulling is not somehow in the rules. And the thing I don't get is VAR are looking at that for an infraction relating to a card. But if you're looking at that relating to a card, then how do you conclude it's no foul? And Chelsea are not asking for a yellow or a red Chelsea are simply saying, even if you're looking at it, it's a foul. Otherwise, why are you looking at it? Exactly. So everybody can see the hair pulling. And therefore, why do Tottenham, under the rules, get the ability after they just wave it off, no further action needed? How come they then get to retake a corner? Why is the corner not waved off and then Chelsea get a free kick, regardless of if a red card is given? And there's nothing in the rules that references hair pulling. Now, not everybody has Kukurea's hair, right. which is Rapunzel-like. So there's a lot to cling on. But I think that these are the kind of incidents that should have the rule makers go back and one, put hair pulling in the mix. But to clarify, if before a ball is delivered, there is an infraction, because we've seen this many, many times, by the way. How many times before a corner do you see defenders tugging and moving and the referee blows the whistle, right, right. goes over, speaks to them, and then says, retake the corner. But why are we not looking at the video evidence and saying, well, actually, you fouled? And the answer is because there's an acceptance that the ball hasn't been delivered. So anything that happens before the ball is delivered is waved off. 
but obviously that's a paradox because if you elbow someone in the face before the ball is delivered, then you get sent off. And in being sent off, it would be a foul to Chelsea. So there's two contradictory messages. On the one hand, you can tussle in the box. And if the ball hasn't been delivered, then the ref will warn you, even though by implication, that means that he or she has seen something. And then on the other hand, if it's that bad that it's an elbow or a hair pull and VAR intervene, then there may be a card and then suddenly it would be ball to the other team. So there is a complete contradiction and there's nothing around hair pulling, even in the rules. So I think Chelsea can feel very hard done by. It's a flaw in VAR. I know fans listening will say that it's an agenda, it's corruption. I, as a journalist and as a neutral, am not going to be disrespectful to any one official and question their integrity, but it's about the functionality of VAR because really both Spurs goals should not have stood. Yeah, I, th- I think you've summed it up brilliantly. And, and of course, we as fans, and I'm putting my fan hat on for a second, after everything that we've been through with Anthony Taylor, right? It's not just this one incident or one game. There's there's a history of these incidents. And so I think that's where the agenda or or the feeling of there's something going against us, especially when he's he's in charge. Now, of course, we've interviewed on this podcast, Christina Uncle, who I know you work with on, on CBS Sports. Uh, and she was very clear and, and helped us understand, you know, how the referees make decisions. Uh, and similar to what you've shared, so that has helped us appreciate the work that the referees do. Now, I'm not I'm not going to say there is an agenda, but with the history, like I was saying, it feels like there is. But of course, you've explained that the laws don't support some of this hair pulling or or in the case of Richarlison being offside, there's an inconsistency with when it's called and when it's not called. And I think that's where we need help from the authorities, from the Premier League, and even above the IFAB and and FIFA, where you kind of clear up some of these gray areas so that we aren't having these instances. Ultimately, for me as a fan, it comes down to we didn't kill the game. We dominated. We were the better team. We had our chances. We didn't kill the game. We left a very good Tottenham side with players that can change games, score goals in in crucial moments, come back into it, and take a point away from us. Yes, we can feel hard done by some of the other things that happen, but ultimately, I look at my team and what we can control and what we can control is is a finishing on the other side. So definitely a very good game. I, for one, was very excited and, and happy to see the passion from Tuchel. Not that we don't see it, but we don't see it towards the opposition or the opposition manager. Uh, so in this case, we got it. We saw it. Uh, usually he's wearing his puffer. This time he was in his polo, yeah. and maybe that made the difference and the heat made the difference. Uh, but I was definitely excited to see that. And and something that, like you said, endears him with the fans, even not that he needs it, but almost brings back to, to the sense that he's here. There was talks about him being distracted, being involved with a lot of things behind the scenes, but he's focused on what happens on the pitch. And yes, he may not be at the Leeds game uh, over the weekend coming up, but he'll be fully involved and, and we'll get uh, this two goal for the rest of the season. That'll be great. And from just the rivalry perspective, this was an early season game like you said imagine if we're towards the end of the season these two face off running for first spot maybe second third even fourth I can't even imagine what the stakes will be like and in, in the in the intensity so I appreciate you clar- clarifying that for us for in terms of the decisions um hopefully some of the fans will agree most may not but uh, <laughs> yeah some, some... Gonna think about the agenda aren't they yep, something with that just briefly is that Key for me is seeing officials, and it's more of a broader point, go directly to the monitor 
Right. Now, we don't want to slow the game down and have them look at everything. But with a hair pull, I think there's still a feeling of it's a hair pull. It's before the corner's been delivered. And obviously, if Tottenham don't score, nobody's talking right. about the hair pull. So there's incident and then there's amplification of incident based on consequences. On the result, because the yeah. consequences are Spurs equaliser, everybody now is talking about it. And interestingly, VAR look at it, then the corner comes in, then they score. And I wonder whether it would have been different if VAR had considered the build-up to the corner after the goal, but you're not going to look at it twice. So then you could argue, once you know the consequence of Spurs equaliser, if a hair pull was discussed retrospectively rather than before the delivery, would then... Anthony Taylor or any official, if we're talking more generically, have asked to go and see it on a monitor, should that be available? And I think that generally, I want to see officials wrestle back a little bit of power. So the challenge is that you don't know what is and isn't consequential until retrospectively. And then at that point, the moment may have gone and VAR may not allow you to go that far back and look at it. And if Anthony Taylor had said, do you know what? I fancy going and having a look at an incident to do with a hair pull before a corner, five, six minutes into injury time, everybody would have said, why is he doing that? Let's leave it to VAR. But in leaving it to VAR, you wrestle a bit of the control away from the official. And there's no answer because you can't have the official looking at everything. But sometimes as a fan, along with wanting to hear the dialogue potentially live now i think they're going to release the recordings afterwards but you want to hear them live for the drama and to understand what's being discussed and also for accountability but as far as i think the referee there has to be more of our officials showing in real time that they are fully a part of the decision-making process, not just reliant on the people who are in the VAR room. And I suppose the only way of doing that over time will probably be that, you know, in however many years, the referee's notebook, which is quite archaic because it is just a notebook with a pen and the referee's whistle, which is quite archaic, will end up all being digital. And I can definitely see a time when, a referee might just have a sort of mini iPad that's the same size as a notebook and they'll whip it out and they'll just tap to confirm a yellow card and then they'll be able to look at a replay without necessarily running off the field or moving. And I remember talking to Arsene Wenger about this, who's obviously pushed these semi-automatic offsides and he was saying the same, that eventually timekeeping may be taken out the official's hands yellow and reds in terms of actually logging them might be taken away. And this is way in the future, so it's not imminent. And then, of course, if officials are to benefit from VAR and to look at more things, why not give them a notebook-sized digital screen so then they just whip it out and there's the replay. And as VAR look at it and still input, the official in talking to VAR can just glance down at what's in their hand and also watch everything in real time. So then if it gets to the point where an official watching that says, well, actually, can I see that from a different angle? Or can you just zoom in? You can have that two-way conversation 
There's no real two-way at the moment. So it goes to VAR, they flag it. VAR look at it, they communicate their decision. The referee goes with it. Occasionally VAR say you might want to look at this on a big screen, but very rarely or never in football, but you do find this in other sports, is the official on the field watching the video and the chat in real time and is part of that conversation. And I think until we get that, we are not only going to be in the dark, but our officials are in danger of becoming over-reliant on the video technology. And you can understand why, because there's experienced referees up there as well. But part of the football love is still about every referee is different, how lenient they are, how strict they are, how fast they are, how they referee a game. And I know VAR is meant to add consistency, but it's inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're saying, Ben, is is with the implement, implementation of more technology coming into the game, that's obviously going to help the referees. But what I really was interested in, what you touched on, was the two-way communication. Uh, I think that, for me, is is crucial because, like you said right now, all we get to see is the referee touch his ear. We know someone's in his ear, but we don't know what's going on between them. And it, it most likely is VR saying, yeah, I think it's a foul or no, go look at the screen. This is what we think. I think the two-way communication will definitely be helpful. But all in all, I think a, a good result for Tottenham to walk away from Stamford Bridge, where they rarely uh, get any points with the point, uh, adds to what Conte is building on, on that side and, and over there. And for Chelsea, I think uh, it almost brings back that belief that when we are firing and we are focused on what we are doing, we are a team that can beat anyone. Of course, we didn't win in this case, but I think it sets us up well for, for the remainder of this season, at least going into the next few weeks. With Leeds coming up, that's a, a challenge in itself, and, and we'll pre preview that in a later episode. But uh, Ben, let's touch on some of the transfer stories. I know you only got about 20 minutes left. Uh, Anthony Gordon from Everton is a name that has come up. Uh, a decent player, I think we all appreciate what he brings to Everton quite kind of a step up to get into Chelsea and, and maybe even lead the line for Chelsea. Yeah, I think so. And from Chelsea's perspective, it plays into this longer term strategy of bringing in young talent. And they've already had a really strong window in my opinion, in that respect, it's a lot of money to pay. And it's important to note that there may be a bit of gamesmanship here because Newcastle United are also part of the race, if you like, for Gordon. And from their perspective, they were under the impression that the player was not for sale. And when Tottenham and Newcastle inquired earlier in the window, they were told very clearly, not only not for sale, but valuation to even push things forwards. And you still might get a no is 50 million. And Newcastle United bid around 35 million. And I just wonder whether Everton's stance has changed now and they are prepared to sell. And then in that context, you have to ask the question, why was this news briefed at the time it was at the same time that Chelsea's owners and Newcastle's minority owners were together at a game? So the Chelsea interest is there in the sense that it hasn't just been made up. They have actually placed and had a bid rejected. But the reason why it has been briefed to the media is partly because Everton would love a bidding war between Chelsea and Newcastle United to get them to their 50 million. And I don't think that Chelsea will get sucked into that, but they are very, very keen on the player. So as I reported yesterday, Chelsea's bid was rejected and they're now considering their next move. They don't value Gordon at 50 million, but they have some leverage to work with because there's a few players that Everton 
are relatively interested in. The possibility of Broyer being part of the deal is non-existent, as I've been told. The perspective at Chelsea's end is to get Broyer to sign a new contract, which means that he could be loaned out if there's buy-in from the player still. And that's been the big challenge, persuading Broyer to go out on loan somewhere because his starting position has always been that he wants to either be told he's part of the squad or he'd rather move on. And that is why he was very interested in a West Ham move. But Chelsea have kind of pacified that situation. So it wouldn't surprise me if a Bamiyang, for example, comes in, if Broya is prepared to go out on loan. So there might be something there still for Everton, for Newcastle, for Leeds United, who have all been very interested in Broya, but he will not be offset to get to that 50 million. That's the point that I'm making. And I think I might have been the first to even report that yesterday. And that's a key part. And then other players that could be factored in, some will say Callum Hudson-Odoi, but it will be a loan again, so not too relevant in terms of the financials, and there's lots of clubs chasing him. And then Billy Gilmore is probably unlikely too, because Anana has arrived, and Everton have got some other priorities too, so I think that's unlikely. Ross Barkley is another one that Lampard has kind of dismissed quite a while ago with Celtic still interested in the player. So it's sort of interesting because it's really easy, isn't it, to say that there's a lot of interest in terms of players that Everton might want. But then the reality is some of those have been ruled out already. So Batchway might be a name that could be factored in. That is another one to kind of keep across. And, you know, in as per Levi Colwell with Kukurea, the conversations that take place, there could be the ability to get a loan deal done for Broya if the player buys in. But that's not Chelsea's strategy here. They're not trying to use Broya as leverage in order to get Gordon. They see Broya as a long term part of Chelsea Football Club, which is why they want to try and tie him down. So it remains to be seen whether Chelsea go back and how high, not the priority at the moment even though they very much rate him and they could get sucked into a bidding war and even within that whole context to reiterate again Everton's whole summer stance has been they do not want to sell the player so I think Newcastle will be quite surprised by all of this because they'd given up they'd moved on Tottenham had inquired and been told the same thing and now late in the window Chelsea are trying their luck they've bid more than Newcastle bid but they're still well short of the valuation. So it's one to watch between now and the end of the window. I think also when we saw Reese James post on Instagram, Gordon replied to that. So that has set tongues wagging and there's been some photos of him in London, I think, in the last 24 hours. Yeah, I, I saw well. that, yeah. There's lots of speculation and no doubt a player that is on Chelsea's radar, but by the same token, if you were to ask me now who they are really wanting as priorities, even though this is long-term, not short-term, it remains Aubameyang and Fafana and De Jong. But this is a different type of signing strategy-wise because he's a player that could be factored in now, but essentially is somebody for the future. And that's part of the decision-making process as well from the player's perspective as well, because he's playing at Everton right, he's and he's started. having opportunities because DCL, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, is injured. And obviously, Richarlison's gone to Spurs. If he walks into Chelsea today, where is the pathway? And I don't really see an eventuality where they would just buy him and loan him back to Everton or anything like that. So where does he fit in? How many minutes does he play? 
And as much as the move may excite Gordon, he's obviously going to have to get answers to those questions before determining where he wants his next step to be. If he goes to Newcastle, there would be far more game time, in my opinion, in the next year than at Chelsea. Yeah, and, and that's that's the question, right? I mean, we look at our attack and you mentioned Batshuayi, who, of course, is not part of the plans, but he's still he's still at the club. Uh, we've seen Hakim Ziyech on the bench for the last few games, who's not gotten any minutes. And I know he was linked with the move to AC Milan earlier in the in the window, but I think that has kind of uh, slowed down a little bit. So there are players in the squad that need to be moved on, or at least need to figure out their future, as well as maybe Aubameyang comes in. And, and that's my next question is, uh, and I think you answered it, Gordon and Aubameyang aren't an either or. It's it's something that would, could happen together. Uh, and so in that case... What is going on with Aubameyang? I think 35 million euros was the fee that we're seeing. Uh, there were supposed to be talks over the weekend. Is that something that's progressed along? I know it's it's, low, it's just still Monday here, uh, but anything from, from that side? Yeah, I think there's a fair chance by the time people are listening to this podcast, uh, Aubameyang might have moved further. The dual issue is fee and the fact that Xavi quite likes Aubameyang and Barcelona have never been certain that they want to let Depay and Aubameyang leave. And those that saw the video of Aubameyang being unveiled with his squad number probably could see the player looks quite happy at Barcelona, but they're not going to turn down a offer if the price is met. But because they feel that Depay is uh, almost certain outgoing now, they can be quite bullish with Aubameyang, especially because Xavi really likes the player. So Chelsea are going to have to work out if there's any common ground here and Alonso might be factored into the negotiations as well. But in essence, Barcelona are looking for something in the region of 30 million euros. Perhaps they'll be considered to sell for 25 million. That remains to be seen. And Chelsea's offer is kind of more around the 50 million euros mark so there's some work to be done on the negotiation side. The deal is not a given, just my personal opinion. I don't like giving it too often on transfers that haven't yet happened because it's kind of irrelevant and it gets people overly excited. But I do think that there is a strong chance of Aubameyang ending up at Stamford Bridge and Thomas Tuchel's relationship with him is going to be absolutely key. He's open to the move because of Champions League football and being back in uh, London. So from a personal point of view, there's that ability to persuade him. But make no mistake, he is enjoying life at Barcelona as well. And that's the only caveat to the whole situation that usually when you get to a transfer where the selling club is prepared to negotiate, the player says he's open and the buying club are really keen you think everyone's on the same page. But Xavi is a complication here because he's openly telling Aubameyang, listen, if you stay, you're part of my plans. And that puts doubt in Aubameyang's mind. And as a consequence, even though it's not an overly complicated transfer like De Jong, Chelsea are still yet to fully convince. Not in a, it's not going to happen sense, more just in a, it's not that advanced yet. They're yet to fully convince Aubameyang to 100% make the move. So first, they've got to get the price. From there, I do think they can and even will convince Aubameyang to make the move. But the transfer at the time of recording, not a given, because Chelsea are yet to agree a fee and yet to 100% convince the player. That will move fast. 
And the great thing from a fan point of view, when people are impatient about this stage of the window is that everything has to move fast. So if we'd have had this conversation in early June, I probably would have said to you, this could drag on throughout the summer because Aubameyang is undecided about his future. But right now with the season starting and only a couple of weeks before the window ends, whether Aubameyang wants time or not to decide, the whole thing has to move fast, which is why I've already said that by the time people are listening to this, we may well have already seen some progress. Yeah, and and I think that's fair, right? Is Chelsea want him, of course, but if he has any doubt, that's obviously going to impact the decision-making and how fast it goes. But of course, like you said, with just a little bit over two weeks left, everyone's got to move faster and, and resolve this. I don't even know if we have time to get into the whole De Jong saga. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to skip over that. If you, if anyone's listening that really wants to find out, Ben does an excellent job on his Twitter to update uh, on some of these stories. But Ben, I do want to talk about Fofana and Leicester in general. Um, Fofana seen at the end of the Arsenal Leicester game saying maybe a goodbye to, to the fans or maybe just a, a thank you in general. Um, where are we with that? I know there's been a couple of bids that have been rejected. You did an excellent job explaining what these bids and how these how the how it works in the last episode. Uh, but are we getting closer to to some kind of resolution between all parties, Fofana, Leicester, and Chelsea? Well, I think the good news at the time of recording with Fofana is that there is direct talk scheduled for this week, and I expect the saga. Not that it's really been a saga, I suppose you can only call it that because of the games played by Fafana, which has kind of set social media alight. But I expect this deal to conclude by the end of the week, one way or the other. So not to misconstrue what I'm saying, it isn't yet a definite because there's no club-to-club agreement, but I expect Chelsea to get to either an agreement or realise that Leicester won't sell by the end of the week rather than it dragging on. And the reason for that is because there's a back and forth now. So two bids rejected, intermediaries were used to lay the framework. Then Chelsea now enter directly for club-to-club negotiations. And as I've said many times, once you've made a couple of bids, it's not just a case of why isn't the third bid being placed? Because you don't want to be seen as buyer or seller to be making bid after bid after bid blindly. Once you've done two and you've assessed the lay of the land, and you've tried your luck trying to get a lower acceptance, and you've had it dismissed, you use the intermediaries and the more meaningful conversation to basically informally negotiate. So when your next bid, if you like, comes in, whether verbal or formal, it stands a much better chance of being accepted. So the very fact that there's been intermediary and now club-to-club engagement tells you that the reality is very different to what at times Brendan Rodgers has said. And Wesley Fofana is for sale for the right price. And I think deep down, everybody's known that all along as well. So then the key question is, are Chelsea going to have to pay a world record fee or just under? And Chelsea's preference is to pay under 80 million naturally, because who wouldn't negotiate trying to get the best possible price? But they also ideally, even though it's not the lead factor, don't want to have Fofana in a Maguire situation where the price tag hangs over him. And that's another factor, even though it won't be pivotal to whether he does or doesn't sign. So Chelsea are pushing hard. They're growing in confidence because Leicester have gone from not for sale to don't really want to sale. Uh, It's not a 100% given yet, 
that everything is moving in the right direction. And I think that we'll know a lot more by probably Wednesday or Thursday, first of all, because the clubs will have had the Monday, the Tuesday to get to a point where a deal is agreed. That's what Chelsea are hoping anyway. And also by the end of the week, we'll find out whether Fana's training is normal and it is in the squad. And obviously that's the most telling thing of all, that your first clue is often in this context. Now we've got games. Leicester can't hide the fact if a deal is advanced or close, they can fob it off. There can be secrecy from both sides. But once we get close to a game, they can't hide the fact that Wesley Fofana isn't in their squad. And if that's the case, then you basically know that the deal is all but done. They may say he's picked up a knock. They may say that he's (laughs) ill, but... That would be highly coincidental, not impossible. So that's one to watch towards the end of the week. If uh, nothing from sources or from media or publicly is out there at that point. And I think that because Fafana wants the move, because Leicester need the finances and they may need the finances to move in the market and find a replacement. If Leicester are genuinely intent on selling, it is also in their interest now to wrap this up very fast. I don't think they have the ability to sort of buy first, sell second. I think they need some of the funds to buy a replacement and they have to give themselves time in the window to do that. So that plays into Chelsea's hands. So again, it can't be said it's 100% done purely because Leicester have bullish, they're tough negotiators. Chelsea have never intimated that they're going to quite pay 85 million. Um, And why would they? It's not a good negotiation tactic to brief to media that you'll pay whatever it takes. So uh, there's a bit of gamesmanship as well around the fee uh, from Leicester's end and from Chelsea's end. And that's why everything is a little bit quieter and secretive at the moment. But uh, Chelsea wouldn't still be at the table this late in the window uh, after two rejected bids and intermediaries talk unless they thought they could get it uh, over the line. So um, I think that if they are to succeed, not a given, but heading in that direction, then this is a big, big week. Yeah, and and like you said, uh, of course, this is a big week, but going into next week, both of them play each other on the 27th at, at Stamford Bridge. So yeah. I'm sure they'll want to have some resolution, and especially Fofana uh, would want to want this resolved. And it would be interesting if he ends up making his debut against, against Leicester, uh, similar to what we've seen in the past. Uh, ben, just five minutes left here. I do want to touch on the Michael Edwards story. Uh, I think you reported it also on your Twitter, but uh, this is something that he he's decided he wants a break. Uh, he's interested in the project. He likes what Bowley and, uh, and Clear Lake are, are planning to do at Chelsea, but it's just something that he wants to step away from, maybe get a, a mental break and then come back, maybe not at Chelsea, but just in the sport. Uh, do you think Chelsea may end up waiting if it's six, seven months, given that Bowley has done a decent job so far? I'd be surprised if Chelsea waits because, as I understand it, it's going to be a year break. And a year break means a year break, by the way. It doesn't mean see you next summer. And when you prepare for a summer window, you're doing that a couple of windows ahead. So from Edwards's point of view, if he doesn't want to return to a club until the summer, that could potentially be at the end of the summer window, which means that you actually may not get him if you wait for him for the January window, for the summer window, and then he's coming in for the following January. And that's not ideal to have a sporting director start mid-season, even though perversely Chelsea want to bring someone in ASAP because they don't really have a sporting director at the moment. Todd Bowley is doing well to spin the plates and cover the interim role. But naturally, he would rather appoint somebody 
ASAP in September to start working on January, but also next summer. And I think that Edwards just wants a full year off. So that's problematic. As I reported 10 days ago, uh, Chelsea held multiple meetings with Michael Edwards. They threw everything at him. They made him what two different sources now have termed a, quote, tasty offer. And he was genuinely blown away by the project and the level of freedom. The one thing that was of concern was the data at the football club. And under Abramovich, Chelsea fell behind their rivals. And I think that he was quite surprised how little data the club actually have and use, even basic data. So that's one thing that's lacking. And I think Chelsea know that and will improve that under the new regime. And Bowley in particular is more aware than most, in my opinion, of that particular point, because he's data-driven, Danny Finkelstein, data-driven. So that will improve over time. But a sporting director would expect to come into a big club uh, with more data and better organised data as well from the data that exists. And Chelsea are way behind the other clubs that they would consider to be their rivals in that respect. But he was just very impressed by Bowley, the lack of ego, the confidence in delegating to different um, departments and the role that he would be given. It's a dream job for a sporting director from everybody that I talk to because they will be given that control. They will be given that patience as has been proven in this window. They'll be backed financially. So that's good because there'll be a variety of currently engaged sporting directors that Chelsea can go to and probably get quite quickly. So there's no cause for panic because if they want someone in September, they can have more meaningful talks with a variety of sporting directors now once the window closes. And don't be surprised, therefore, if once the window closes, a whole range of new names materialise and Chelsea do their due diligence and make a short list, a much longer list, because once the window shuts, there'll be a few out there that they probably do want to hold quite meaningful talks with. And then there's sort of the existing names that have already been mentioned uh, such as Paul Mitchell, very real possibility uh, that he could come into the mix, someone that the old regime considered uh, back in April in a technical director capacity. And he's on the board at Monaco, but he could quite easily get out of it. And I know from talking to sources that he is very, very keen. So Chelsea haven't done too much with him, but they could easily move. Uh, Maxwell, a name that's been linked, uh, didn't really leave PSG from what I gather under the best of circumstances. So uh, I actually have my doubts now uh, that Maxwell will become a serious contender um, for a variety of reasons, uh, particularly um, down to the manner in which, let's just say, he left PSG. So let's see. Um, but um, not to be discounted, nonetheless. Uh, and one or two more will creep in as well. Uh, but I just don't think Chelsea will wait for Edwards, or if they did wait for Edwards, they would have to think about a new structure where maybe uh, they brought in somebody senior that would work under Edwards and let them put a plan in place uh, with Edwards' blessing. Uh, but that would effectively mean that Edwards was going against what he said, which is that he doesn't want to take a break from football. So my understanding at the moment is it is a rejection now from Edwards. It wasn't 10 days ago. It was a uh, wrong timing. Uh, what do you want to do? Um, thanks for the offer. Very good offer. Um, not for me in the short or medium term. So in that context, it was more than up to Chelsea to decide whether they wanted to go back uh, and say, we'll wait for you or we won't wait for you. Um, but now my understanding is in the um, last few days, um, 
there has been that additional contact uh, since I first reported it about two weeks ago. And now it is more of a firm uh, sort of rejection full stop, because even Edwards perhaps doesn't think it's particularly prudent to leave it for a year and a couple of windows. So uh, you can never say never, because um, the thing about this ownership group is they went um, to John Henry, because Bowley knows Henry, and they spoke about Liverpool. Um, it's unclear exactly how much Henry shared, but he was given insight to some extent superficially as to how Liverpool operated um, clubs are never going to share too many secrets. Um, but given that Chelsea are looking to move the model to a more Liverpool-like model, uh, Edwards is the perfect candidate. So um, I don't think you can ever say never. It's a rejection. Um, but in practice, uh, what does Bowley do? Uh, how hard does he fight? You're not going to get him imminently. But is there a stopgap? Is there an interim appointment? Um, let's see. But Edwards has been very clear. It's a rejection for now. And uh, Chelsea have always had multiple targets. So um, if you just look at what we know, uh, which sources are saying is now Edwards rejecting after a very, very strong offer with everything thrown at him and Chelsea's desire to appoint in uh, September rather than or, or close to September, September, October, rather than wait. That all points to towards the fact that they will now explore other candidates. But like I say, you can just never say never uh, because Edwards is just so highly rated that if they miss out on a candidate if they don't find the right candidate. If they have a fantastic window now and they think that January is going to be a whole lot quieter, uh, does it change the dynamic in any way? Um, and that's why I think the key time will be the week after the window closes when Todd Bowley can get a good night's sleep and then uh, focus on this as a priority um, instead of running around chasing after signings. Yeah, it's he's had a, a chaotic few months, uh, along with yourself. I, I guess you can say that you've been you've been very active with the ownership part and now the transfers. Uh, but yeah, I think from Todd Bowley and Chelsea perspective, thinking of as a fan, uh, if Michael Edwards isn't isn't up for it and needs that mental break or needs just a oh, time away from the game, it just makes sense to look at other options. And I'm sure there are other options on on the list, like you've mentioned. Uh, and just on on the Bolly piece, I think he's done a fantastic job, not just you know stepping into a role that he isn't familiar with, stepping into a, a system he's not familiar with in terms of football, soccer, whatever you want to call it. Even yesterday, just seeing Sam Kerr and and some of the other. Uh, yeah. Uh, players from the the women's squad at the game in the box with with him just endears him to the fans and, and shows that he cares about not just the first team but the women's team the academy all over and he's here to to change the way things are done and, and we look forward to it so uh, Ben I know we've gone a little bit over time but thank you very much for for jumping on today uh, that wraps it up guys thank you very much for listening please continue to subscribe like and follow us it's at the Premier Chels on, on wherever you get your podcasts and Instagram and on Twitter. It's at Premier Chels. Once again, follow uh, Ben as well. It's Jacobs Ben on Twitter and Ben Jacobs on Instagram. Uh, send us your feedback and we will be back with a new episode. But until then, stay safe and up the Chels. Hey, guys, the Premier Chels is sponsored by Kickoff Coffee. They are a top quality artisanal roasted coffee. In other words, they're Champions League winner and Premier League winner every single time. They deliver fresh bags directly to your home, so you don't have to go to a coffee shop and pick up something. And the best part about them is every bag gives back to soccer charities. 10% of the proceeds go to organizations that use soccer to promote youth social development in the underserved areas. Use our code TPCOFFEE15 to get 15% off your order. You can order at kickoffcoffeeco.com. 
or check out the links on our social media. Thanks.